And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Keith Law. Welcome to episode 46 of the Keith Law Show. This is a special mailbag edition because I'm in the middle of the rollout of all of my team reports as part of my annual prospect package. As I speak to you right now, it is Monday afternoon. That means half of the league's top 20s have run already. All of the American League team's top 20 prospect lists have run. And in the next three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all of the NL will run East, Central, and West. Why in that order? I have no idea. You can now see, uh, you can also see my top 100 ranking, all the top 100 prospects in all of minor league baseball, as well as my ranking of all 30 organizations, all 30 farm systems, just the prospects still in their farm systems. All of that is now up for subscribers to The Athletic. If you're not currently a subscriber, the best current offer we have for new subscribers is theathletic.com slash K-L-A-W. I believe it is still $3.99 a month as an introductory price. Also, I would like to just remind everyone, as I will every week from now until at least mid-April, my second book, The Inside Game, is due out in paperback on April 6th, and you can already pre-order it on multiple sites. It's available on bookshop.org. You can see it on Amazon. Any local bookstore should be able to pre-order the paperback edition for you. Thank you so much to those of you who've already done so. I can actually see some of you have ordered through my site directly. And also, you can still get my first book, Smart Baseball, which has been out in paperback for a couple of years now. Okay, now we have a slew of questions to go through. At last count, there were more than 30 already just in the first, I don't know, 20 or so minutes after I tweeted out a call for these questions. So I will try to get through as many of these as I possibly can. Uh, first question from Laniel. Hi, Keith. What have you heard about Bryce Ball? Lana seems to be excited about him, although it could be typical homer bias. His minor league stats seem promising. Thanks so much. Well, he is, in fact, on my Atlanta top 20. Uh, I'm actually going to pull up exactly where. I don't want to give you the wrong number here, but he is a prospect. He absolutely is a prospect. He is 15th on my Atlanta ranking. Uh, and I say I won't read the entire comment, but he is huge. He is 6'6 and 240, but actually plays pretty capably at first base. He is not a DH only guy. And really, it's it's a power bat. You're just betting on huge power. And he's 22, so he's really got to move now. The lost season hurt a lot of these college guys, especially college guys drafted a little bit later, college guys who were just bat first, who didn't get to play in 2020. So now he's 22. He's got to go right to high A at least. And it probably say finish in, in double A, no worse than double A to point him on a typical development track. But the word was he looked good this summer when he was Atlanta brought him to the alternate site and that he was fine facing some of the pitching there. It's not really a perfect substitute, but it's kind of the best we've got. Seems to have an idea of the strike zone and it's huge power. This is a bet on a 30 homer bat. And while he's a little older, uh, he's not going to have defensive or positional value. We, everybody seems to like what they've seen from him enough to say, yeah, he's a prospect. He's got a chance. And if he goes out and mashes in high A and double A this year, he'll be 
quite a bit higher on their list. It'd be hard for a guy like that to crack my top 100, but it's not out of the question. Okay, next question from Jeffrey. Hi, Keith. I worked for the New Mexico Lobos from 2011 to 2012 and watched Mitch Garver and DJ Peterson every day. I thought Mitch was can't miss, thought he was better a better prospect than DJ back then, mainly due to quick hands and great work ethic. Why did they end up where they did in their drafts? That is uh, a question that is broader than just these two prospects. I see this as somebody who was never super high on DJ Peterson, did not think he was a first-round talent. Uh, I don't think I ever actually saw Garver, and maybe I saw him one game. He wasn't really on my radar at that point. But in Peterson's case, uh, I didn't really buy the bat, and I definitely didn't think he could play third base. The problem that a lot of kids coming out of New Mexico, and this applies to Nick Gonzalez, who the Pirates took in the first round last year, and certain other extreme college environments, extreme hitters environments, is that a lot of the times the bat doesn't really translate when they're not getting to hit at tremendous altitude. And the benefits that come not just from the ball carrying further, but from the way that pitches, especially pitches that are supposed to move, move less. And in Peterson's case, I thought that he was going to swing and miss far too often uh, and not get to this supposedly huge power. And I believe he was the top, the highest drafted guy in his draft who hasn't made the majors. I'm not 100% sure on that. I would have to go and double check, but I think that's the case. Um, as for Garver, I don't know. I can't answer that question for you because I don't remember him from the draft class. Uh, so why he wasn't liked more, I'm not sure because he just wasn't talked about enough at the time to even get onto my radar in the first place. I will say since that point in time, and this has nothing to do with Garver specifically, but I do try to ask around when doing draft work about college catchers who might catch because bar's pretty low to be a big league catcher of any sort. It's still like reasonably high to be an everyday guy, uh, but to get to the big leagues as a catcher, you don't have to do a whole lot. That's how we ended up with Cal Raleigh and Ryan Jeffers. I think we're in the same draft class a couple of years ago. Those guys are both top, pro- top 10 prospects in their own systems into decent systems. They're going to get to the big leagues. They'll probably have pretty long careers if they stay healthy. And they may not always be regulars. And both guys are good prospects, but slightly flawed. But you know what? They're college catchers who could catch and who could hit a little bit. Those guys are those guys should probably go in the top five rounds pretty much every year. And if they're not, then it's fair to go back and say, well, well, why not? He could catch and he could hit at that level. Why doesn't that project to being at least a big league backup? Uh, Tom, I assume it's Tom, uh, rookie of the year predictions. I'm going to hold off on that because we don't really know much about playing time just yet. You know, when we get closer to the season, it starts to become clear who's got a job and who doesn't have a job. That's such a huge factor. It's not how well you play. It's how much you play. I mean, Devin Williams won rookie of the year, even though he was not the most valuable rookie in the National League because he played the whole season. Brian Hayes was only up for a month. And he was the best rookie in the National League last year. And somehow he barely got a sniff. And I think part of that is voters were kind of lazy and filled out their ballots too soon. But also playing time counts. I'm not saying it should, shouldn't. It's not the issue. I'm seeing that historically it does count. Uh, what non-ranked prospects are capable of making the biggest jump onto next year's list? At the bottom of every top 20, I in every year I tag one sleeper. That is a prospect from that top 20 who is not on the global top 100, but I am saying this is the guy in the system most likely to make the jump into the global top 100 next year. What I have done this year for most teams is relisted last year's sleeper prospect. Now, in a few cases, for example, Hudson Head was the Padres sleeper last year. He's been traded. So in a few cases, it no longer applies. But for most teams, I've got last year's prospect, and I'm saying if I still believe that's true, and in almost every case, I am holding to that, 
but also adding somebody new because new guys have entered the system and new guys did change physically over the course of the last year. And so I want to make sure that, to be frank, this, this to me is about sort of adding more value, telling you more. If I think I know more, I think people I talk to know more. I want to make sure that that's accurately reflected in the lists. Who is the Blue Jays catcher of the future? I'm going to go with Alejandro Kirk for now, but I still think eventually it's Gabriel Moreno. Thoughts on the changes to the minor league structure? I would refer you back to multiple columns I've written on that subject. What stadium or city has the best minor league experience? Uh, I mean, Nashville's a minor league. Nashville is a major league city with a minor league team. I haven't been to the stadium. I hear it's amazing. But at the end of the day, if you're telling me I can go spend a weekend in any city in minor league baseball, it's Nashville. Flaming Liberal SA, one of my longtime readers and Twitter followers. Do you see someone like J.J. Blade getting a serious shot at MLB time early on for the Marlins? If I, I interpret that to mean early on in 2021. I would say mid-year seemed more likely. If we had had a regular 2020 season, he, he could have debuted last September and he'd certainly be in line for a May or June call-up. But because he's barely played, I am thinking maybe we just push that back 60 days. I don't know. And the Marlins have certainly not been afraid to promote prospects quickly. They had to last year because of the COVID-19 outbreak. But still, they ran guys up to the big leagues and said we essentially said to the Lewin Diaz's and the Jesus Sanchez's, we don't care if you struggle. We're, we just want you to come up and play. And I actually really, really like that approach. The Marlins don't get enough credit. I know we all love to dunk on the Marlins, particularly because of their previous ownership. But they're doing some really, really good things over there. The farm system looks great, and they're making better player development decisions than they have, I think, in a really long time. Dan asks, without the benefit of a minor league season, did you do any scouting of the winter leagues? No, I, the Athletic is barely letting us travel at all. So I have actually not traveled since last March. I think it is much more likely that I will uh, – the most likely answer is I will travel again in April. Um, there is a lot of good news, though. My wife is fully vaccinated. Her parents are fully vaccinated. My mom just got her first dose. My dad is – he's essentially in the queue. And sounds like there's a good chance I will be able to get vaccinated at some point in April, by which point I would travel basically freely. Um, is there anything to take away from those Winter League games on an evaluation side? Uh in a normal year, I would say not that much because it's such an inconsistent level of competition and a guy could face a major league quality arm in the first inning and by the sixth or seventh inning, he's facing an A-ball guy. That said, in a year when that's all we have, should we at least look at guys to see if anything's a little different? Hey, Luis Medina went down there, made four starts and barely walked anybody. Okay, I'll take that. That's information. Weighted appropriately, it's still, it should still have a lighter weight, a small weight in the overall calculus, but... When we didn't have a minor league season at all, we shouldn't just throw out that data because of the inherent noise. It's not useless. It's just always less useful than 140 games of data that might come in a typical minor league regular season. Bradshaw asks, outside of Alzole and maybe Marquez, if he doesn't end up in the pen, any young starting pitching the Cubs could possibly count on in the next couple of years? Sincerely, Tyson Miller, Stan. Yes, I'm sorry. I don't think Tyson Miller is really a starting pitching prospect. Maybe an emergency sixth starter, but that's probably it. Um, I do think Cole Franklin is a very legitimate prospect and has a chance to be a mid-rotation guy in time. I think Ryan Jensen's a starter. Now, he may not be a high-ceiling one. He may not be the kind of starter you'd expect from a guy who throws 99, but I think he has enough of all the other things to be a major league starter uh, and to help this team. And if you start lining guys up in the Cubs' overall organizational depth chart at starting pitching, Franklin and Jensen are are on it. They're probably in the top 10, I would say, in the system. 
Jamie Downs asks, what is Spencer Howard's ceiling, likely outcome? Did his brief MLB time diminish his future outlook? Do the Phillies have any other likely promotions of impact in 2021? Spencer Howard's ceiling is mid-rotation starter. That is still his likely outcome if he's healthy. His MLB time last year didn't change my evaluation of him because the stuff was good, except for the fact that he got a little hurt again. He's had on and off shoulder issues, yet he seems to never lose his velocity. But the fact that he's having a hard time pitching, throwing a full season without suffering a little shoulder soreness is definitely becoming a concern. Uh, Promotions of impact, as with the sleepers for every team, every top 20 also is followed by 2021 impact, which is any prospect, even guys who weren't in the top 20, who I think will have some kind of major league exposure experience or impact this year. The only thing that's not in my top 20s this year that those of you who are longtime readers uh, would expect to see would always highlight one fallen prospect from every system. Somebody who was a high draft pick, a big dollar sign guy, previously ranked in the top 100, anything like that, but who's who's dropped, whose stock has dropped, who's not performed, who's gotten hurt, whatever the reason. I think it's really unfair to do something like that this year. And even if a guy came up to the big leagues and was horrible, I'm just not, I'm, I'm not counting any of that against guys. So I just asked my editors at the start of the process, can we just skip that section entirely this year? And uh, she was on board. And so that, that's the one big difference. Uh, Grisham's Grip. That's an interesting Twitter handle and avatar. Uh, curious your thoughts on Mason Thompson. He's on the Padres top 20. Uh, he was right around 10 on the list. His stuff probably plays as a back-end reliever. Those guys don't usually make the top 100. How do you see him developing down the road? If he's healthy enough to start, Mason Thompson is a top 100 prospect for sure and probably a, a league average starter, maybe even a little better. He has no history of durability or sufficient command to get to to be a starter. So for right now, I'm ranking him, I think, pretty aggressively within the Padre system for a guy who's more likely a reliever because of the possibility he still starts. But if you look at where he is on the global scale, that sort of 70-30 reliever starter probability, it works against him and keeps him from being a top 100 guy. But once again, in instructs, he was up to 98 again. Both the slider and changeup can show plus. He doesn't even have to throw a ton of strikes to be some kind of big leaguer. But he's really got to stay healthy. Aaron Valois asks a niche question, but what is your favorite bird in the game wingspan? Very into the indigo bunting. That is a, that's a great question because I think there's something like 160 birds or something just in the base game of wingspan. I've never even played any of the expansions. Uh, but wingspan, for those of you who don't know, is I would say the best new board game of the last five years. If you like board games at all, unless you are into the super crunchy four-hour games, you'd probably agree and you've probably seen something about wingspan too. Um, I will say my favorite birds in the game, these are birds are the cards you play to essentially to score points and build a little engine in your game. Uh, these are all, they're all the birds that let you play a second bird on the same turn. So like there's these, the great blue heron and the great egret are some of these, the house wren. I mean, there's a lot of them that allow you to do this. The eastern bluebird and the downy woodpecker. These are all birds that you play them once and you get to play another bird into the same row on your overall board. And to me, that's just so powerful that I don't think it's unbalanced, but those are the cards I'm always trying to get and keep 
if I can while playing. I also have to mention there's some baseball connections within. The Baltimore Oriole has a bird, has a card. There is a Blue Jay card. There is a Northern Cardinal card. So we do have a little bit of a baseball overlap, even though obviously that's completely coincidental. This is just because these are all the major North American birds that the designer, Elizabeth Hargrave, who's amazing, put into the game. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Adam asks, it would seem the next logical move for the Blue Jays is to package some of their top prospects and go shopping for a legitimate top of the rotation starter, which I'm sure they're actively doing now. My question is outside of Nate Pearson and Austin Martin, who are your untouchables, if any. I actually would even consider trading Nate Pearson, because he's had some health issues, if it got me multiple years of control of an established Major League starter, uh, you know, towards top of the rotation type of Major League starter. My understanding is that the Blue Jays have a pretty long list of guys who are untouchable. For example, they have said that Kirk and Moreno, the two, their top two catching prospects, were both untouchable. And not even because they think, oh, well, we got to keep all our catchers, but because one of these guys is going to be really good and we don't want to trade the wrong one. I sort of understand that. At some point, you got to give something to get something. But I would certainly be willing to trade Groshans or Clothenstein or... Um, I would trade over Elvis Martinez, who's a top 100 prospect, if I thought it was getting me, again, multiple years of control of a guy who was a number one or number two starter. They actually have an ace already. And I mean, you think Pearson could be their number two. If Pearson's healthy for 30 starts this year, he's your number two starter. But I could also understand them saying, now we want somebody who's more established and who we know is going to be uh, going to give us you know 90 starts over the next three years and pitch well above league average. Andrew asks, Joe Adele, small sample size or enough to realize he isn't the second coming of Mike Trout and might just be Torrey Hunter? All right. Well, if he's Torrey Hunter, it's not the worst outcome in the world. Let's be fair. I think Torrey Hunter was like a 50-war guy. That's really good. Uh, But I actually think the answer to the question is not even small sample size. Adele didn't belong in the major leagues last year. He wasn't ready. He didn't look ready in AAA at the end of the year before. And although I didn't really object to the Angels calling him up last year because I didn't object to anybody calling anybody up last year. He wasn't ready. And then we saw he really wasn't ready. And I do think by the end of his time in the major leagues, it started to look like he he was worse on defense than I'd expected. That just says to me maybe him being up and playing as much as he did, struggling as much as he did, maybe that wasn't good for him in the end. But I can't second guess the decision because the time they called him up, I didn't say, oh, they shouldn't be calling him up. I was fine with any team that wanted to call up pretty much any prospect last year. TM Toddy Baseball asks, what systemic changes would you make to Oakland's approach to the draft and to player development? There are le- that That's probably a longer answer. I can try to get into some of it because I feel like they haven't clicked on multiple dimensions here. In the draft alone, for example, 
I don't see a consistent identity to their draft strategy. You know, taking Austin back and Kyler Murray and Matt Chapman, I don't know what the thing is that ties those guys together just as first round picks. Um, and, you know, taking Nick Allen as a, as a well over slide, I think it was second round pick and they just paid him first round money. And I like Nick Allen. I'm not even saying these are all bad players, but what is your draft strategy or draft philosophy that brings all of those guys into the system? And in general, if you look at their drafts over the last, I don't know, five to eight years, they're less productive than they need to be for a team in Oakland's payroll situation to maintain consistent contender status. And what it has done, that Oakland has contended on and off, and it's generally been because of good trades or because they've found guys who were undervalued by other organizations and sort of cleaned them up. You know, taken Marcus Semyon, who couldn't play shortstop when he came to Oakland, and they turned him into a pretty good defensive shortstop. On the player development side, it's a very hard question for me to answer on any system, because unless we know they're doing something very obviously wrong, it's hard to comment or criticize. But I will say specifically, they've had a lot of pitchers get hurt, and I don't know if that's their fault or not. But it is the kind of thing when you have that kind of run of pitcher injuries, you have to at least go through the introspection process and say, are we doing something that is either A, increasing these pitchers' risks of getting hurt, or B, decreasing their chances of staying healthy, just to make sure that you're not doing it. Now, James Caprillion may, you know, he was probably hurt the day that he was, I think it already had Tommy John when they got him. And it turns out whatever, he had some shoulder issues afterwards. It's been kind of a long, slow runway for him to get back into the air, so to speak. That one's probably not on them. But Dalton Jeffries, you know, not just getting hurt, but very slow rehab process. AJ Puck has had multiple injury issues. Are these all part of a broader problem or is this just kind of bad luck? And these are the big hard throwing kids who just get hurt. I don't know, but if I were running Oakland, I would say, hey, let's at least go have some kind of investigation internally to see are there processes we're doing that are hurting things or are there things we're not doing, but that could help things if we did. Alex asks, what are the chances Mason Wynn, a Cardinals prospect, can actually have a rotation spot and stick it short in the future? Zero. Uh, and it's zero two ways. Zero, he's not a starting pitcher. If you watch him pitch, he is not a starting pitcher. And two, he's not going to do both. I am increasingly bearish on anybody's possibility to do both, unless you're a, you're sort of a Brooks Kieschnick, 25th man on the roster type, who's a you know one inning reliever and pinch hitter, you know, occasional defensive replacement. That's it. I think it's just way too hard to do both. This is why pitchers can't hit. And and I don't want to hear people whining. Well, a pitcher has to hit. Everyone else has to hit. You don't know how hard the job of of a pitcher is. A starting pitcher is not just working one day out of every five. If you think that, just just log off the internet at this point. They're working. They're working all the time and keeping themselves in peak condition to be able to go out and throw as hard as they possibly can 80 to 100 times every five days. They don't have time to go into the cage for a couple of hours every day and work on their swings. So I think Mason Wings is a shortstop. I think he's got huge upside there. If that doesn't work, if he turns out to not hit despite expectations, you make him a reliever and that's your downside. Clint asks, could I rank the Tigers three high-end pitchers in terms of most likely to succeed, Manning, Mize, and Scooble? I have them ranked now as Mize, Manning, Scooble. But Manning and Scooble, I think, were in directly consecutive spots on my top 100. So it's completely fair if you want to say, well, that's like a tie, right? That's not. It's a barely expressed preference. I think Mize is the best. As long as Mize stays healthy, I think he's the best of the three. 
I actually would have said before last year that I thought Manning had the best chance to stay healthy. He's the one who got a little banged up, came up a little sore at the alternate site, and didn't debut last year. My understanding is everything's fine. We'll see. If he is completely healthy, he might have the best probability of all three, but doesn't have the highest ceiling. King Harris, another longtime reader. I think he ranked Cleveland's sixth best shortstop prospect too low and the third best shortstop prospect too high. The sixth best shortstop prospect makes their third best shortstop look like their ninth best shortstop prospect. Uh, That's some sort of tongue twister. And also pretty good satire. Dean asks, what are your thoughts on Nolan Gorman changing positions with Arenado coming to the Cardinals? Is he just a candidate for DH once it's in the NL? No, 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 no. He's way too good of an athlete to talk about him being a DH. And there are a lot of positions on the defensive spectrum between third base and DH. Three, in fact. Any one of which I think Gorman could potentially play, I would put him in right field. Got plenty of arm. Just put him in right field and do it now. Unless, actually, let me rephrase that because that was a bad answer. If the internal belief is we are keeping Nolan Gorman no matter what, you put him in right field immediately. If they're still thinking, hey, we love Nolan Gorman, there's a chance we would use him in trade at some point, I'd leave him at third base for another year. I think he's more valuable in trade if you let him continue to work on his defense and potentially get to a point where he can show everybody that he can play third base. Uh, Blue Jays Faithful asks, love some deeper insight and thoughts into Simeon Woods Richardson and Yasver Zulueta. I will tell you, I don't have anything more on Zulueta than what's in that. Uh, in the Blue Jays top 20 on Richardson. He's an interesting one because an interesting one to discuss because there's a bit of a dichotomy in opinions on him around the league from scouts and other front offices where there are some people who think he's a mid rotation starter. And then there are some people like myself who think he's got good stuff, but that's a tough delivery for, for a starter uh, for a lot of reasons from things as simple as health to, you potentially getting consistently out over your front side and getting good depth on the breaking ball. You know, guys have, and his, the issue I have specifically with him is his arm is very late. If you look at when his front foot lands and look at where his pitching arm is on the course of its arm swing, it's really late. There aren't a lot of big league starters who do that. There are a lot of big league relievers who do that. And I play the odds. That's how I was wrong on Chris Sale. There are really very, very few major league pitchers with arm actions that look like Chris Sale's, uh, major league starting pitchers, because they get hurt. Now, it's double whammy because Chris Sale in college didn't really have a breaking ball at all. And the White Sox not only gave him one, but it went from being a 35 to a 70. But my big issue with him was always his delivery. And there have been plenty of other prospects I crushed for having deliveries that were pretty similar to Chris Sale's. I play the odds. Sometimes you miss, and when you miss on that, you can miss spectacularly. Simeon Woods Richardson can turn out to be a great major league starter. But if I'm playing the odds, I'm saying that delivery is going to lead to him having a hard time succeeding as a major league starter. Uh, the other thing with Zulueta is he hasn't really pitched because he's coming back from Tommy John. So we should get to see him for the first time for real this year. Mike Albert. Hi, Mike. Do you have plans for a third book? Curious where you will go with the topic. Enjoyed the first two. Uh, I would love to write another book. I do not have a topic in mind. It's very TBD. And honestly, with uh, big changes going on in my life, this winter, including getting married, which is absolutely wonderful news. I couldn't be happier. Uh, with that, with uh, trying to do a prospect package in the absence of a year of minor league baseball last year, which frankly was just kind of stressful for me, uh, I put thoughts of writing anything else aside until I sort of get through these next couple of weeks. Craig Needles, if you were Tony Clark, what would be your first priority for the next CBA? Team salary floor, fewer arbitration years. 
That is an excellent question. I'll tell you what wouldn't be my first priority. Quality of food in the clubhouses. Travel conditions. All the stuff they focused on last time around. Your priority is the union. This isn't specific to Tony. I think we tend to personalize a lot of this and act as if Tony Clark is the union. He is the head of the union. He is not all of the union. Your first priority has to be about making sure you get the most money for all of your members that you possibly can. Rather than just getting 30 to $40 million contracts, annual salaries, I should say, for the game's best players, you need to make sure everyone is getting paid. And that means right down to the last guy on the last roster spot, the, the absolute worst guy in Major League Baseball, he still deserves to get paid. And doing everything you can to ensuring that and ensuring players' other contractual rights. You know what I would do? This doesn't necessarily help the big leaguers, but I would try to roll the Rule 5 restrictions back to where they were 10 years ago so that guys get a chance to be claimed by other clubs sooner. Give players a chance to, players who are on the fringes, a chance to go out and try the market. Because what the way it works now, most guys, not all, but most guys will not reach minor league free agency until a lot of their best development years, if not their actual best production years, are behind them. So, hey, if after four years in a system, you know, maybe depending, maybe tie it to the age when a player first signed, but if after four years in a system, you're not on the 40-man roster and you're 25, 26, you're a free agent. Automatic free agency for minor league players at 25. Owners would hate it. GMs would probably hate it. It's good for players. And I still hold that things that are good for players are generally good for the sport. Things that are good for owners are not necessarily good for the sport. They might be, but the way that the sport is run right now, it is a, uh, it is very, we have a, a league that churns out profit and we have owners who are more interested in consistent profits than necessarily in building the best possible baseball teams. That is entirely rational, by the way, because that is what the system rewards. If the system rewards winning more and profit less or rewards winning with more profits, then we will get more teams trying actively to contend in each year. Uh, a couple more. Sorry, I guess I'm not going to get to all of them because I talk too much. Philip, if a team's farm system is moving up your rankings or others, how long would you say that results in market improvement on the MLB team? As a Giants fan, I think the team is getting exciting again. I like Kapler and Zaidi and what they're putting together. I agree with all of that on the Giants. Uh, in their case, though, the bulk of the talent in the farm system is more like three years away. There are other systems that are more than, more like one or two years away. You also have systems like the Padres who dropped from first to seventh in my rankings or second to seventh, I think, actually. And they'd been first for a couple of years before that because it's here. The bulk of the talent is here. Now, the system is still going to produce some talent, but the quality of the farm system is declining because the major league teams are already getting better. Uh, Jason asks, what's the best expansion to get for Seven Wonders? We bought it on your recommendation for Christmas. I've been loving it. Thank you. I love that game. I have never really played with any of the expansions. I love the base game. I've kind of realized, as a obviously a pretty serious board gamer, there aren't many expansions I, I like. Often I just like the base game. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's, you, you should board game any way you want a board game. Generally, for me, if I don't like the base game, I don't, I, I, I don't stick around. And off, rarely do I want to get an expansion that fundamentally changes the original game. There are expansions like Ticket to Ride's 1910 expansion, just added cards and um, larger cards, actually, which turned out to be really useful. 
there are some things like that, but I'm looking at one of my shelves right now. Okay, Pandemic has good expansions. On the Brink is a great expansion. Carcassonne has some great expansions. The Traders and Builders and Inns and Cathedrals, those are the two expansions that I have. I wish the microphone was wireless. I would wander into the back room and read off some more expansions. But I don't think you're all here for the board game content. So, uh, Brendan, still a believer in Carter Keeboom being a league average regular. I would take the under on that at this point. Uh, who or what are your go? This is uh, Kay Hackens. I who or what are your go-to reviewers or other sources to keep up with the best in new fiction? The Guardian, a little bit the New Yorker. Hey, if the New York Times likes somebody, sure, I read them a little bit less. Washington Post, maybe just because I'm a subscriber, so I'm more likely to see it. But yeah, I check all that. I do try to keep up with British press and British reviews more, um, because. I think a lot of great literature and art, music, movies, et cetera, all comes out of other English-speaking countries, thus more accessible to us and more available in the case of books available to us sooner. And so I want to – I don't want to just get the American perspective. Also, um, LitHub, it's Literary Hub is the site. I think they're, they're either Literary Hub or just LitHub on Twitter. I follow them. Not all the content is interesting, but every once in a while they'll pop up something. There was something about a book, a Tunisian novel that was recently translated from French to English called The Ardent Swarm. It looks fascinating. I don't know if it's any good, but I put it on my list. Uh, box score, I think a fellow Long Islander there. Have the Yankees lost all hope for Esteban Floreal? No, I don't think they have. Uh, I was never a really huge fan. I don't think he can hit. Turner Watts, what's the best book you have read so far this year? I've read almost nothing this year. I've only read about six books so far, which for me is nothing. I did just finish Jasper Ford's The Constant Rabbit. It's goofy. It's highly silly satire with a very serious point underneath. It was great. I really liked it. I also really like Jasper Ford's writing. That's Jasper Ford with two Fs, F-F-O-R-D-E. Pokes a little fun at himself and his name, too. Uh, whoop, I just lost Jason. I think it was Jason. Any interest in the Gatsby prequel, Nick? Any thoughts on what might be termed professional fan fiction in general? I really enjoy the show. Thanks. No interest in the Gatsby prequel, unless we find out F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote it. Uh, professional fan fiction? Not interested. Sorry. Don't really like people writing in other folks' universes. There are exceptions. There are always exceptions. But as a general rule, I have not enjoyed when I have read continuations unauthorized sequels, people writing in someone else's universe or taking someone else's characters. Bob asks, are there logical tiers in the top 100 you could share? I could probably draw some lines for you. I'd have to actually sit down and do it. I'd have to sit down, look at the list, and probably give it a little more time than I can give you right now. It's a good question. Daniel, recommendations for the best two-player board games. I do have a list up on my site on The Dish, uh, my personal blog, that ranks them. Um, I will say off the top of my head, uh, Jaipur, J-A-I-P-U-R, is still the all-time best two-player game I've ever played. Seven Wonders Duel is a separate two-player version of Seven Wonders that I also think is absolutely tremendous. Am I looking, Ryan asks, am I looking forward to the Red Rising board game from Stonemire? Yes, I am looking forward to anything Stonemire produces, pu- publishes. Wingspan is one of theirs. I think that's fantastic. Pendulum and Tapestry were theirs. I think those are both very good. So it was Charterstone, which I thought was really great. They also produced Scythe, which I am one of the few people in the world who really didn't care for. But that's okay. I also recognize its great design and tremendous production quality. Uh, Let me see what else I can get through really quick. Tom, why do you hate my favorite team? Uh, If if only I had time to explain that one. 
Uh, Cody, how much does the lack of a minor league season affect rankings and does it favor younger players or older? To the first part, I tried to answer that at the top of the top 100. Uh, It does affect it very much. Does it favor younger players or older? I don't think it's that simple. It's going to affect a lot of players. A few players will benefit. Most players will not. Some younger players will be hurt by the lack of reps. Some older players will be hurt by the fact that they're just a year older and didn't get to progress, didn't get that major league cup of coffee. Brendan, I hope I'm st- I see an accent in there and a different spelling. I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. And if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, I really want to know how I should be saying it. Isn't Catan just Monopoly with extra sheep? You are blocked and reported. Tony, have you heard anything about MLB or individual teams helping minor league affiliates who may not be able to use their home facilities due to COVID restrictions? Not yet, but they're going to have to if they want to have a major league season, I think. Uh, Last question here, and it's not because there aren't good questions here. I uh, just uh, am running out of time. Maddie asks, when you're completing your yearly prospect rankings, what weight, if any, do you put on positional value? For instance, if the hitting profile of Francisco Alvarez was a first baseman, does that crack the top 100? Positional value matters. And I tell you if I think a player is going to play a different position than the one he's playing right now, because that explains why he's ranked where he is. Francisco Alvarez is a catcher in the Mets system. I have him in my top 20. I have him ranked as the Mets top prospect. If he's a first baseman, he is not in my top 20, and he is not the Mets top prospect. He might still get to the top 100, but the standard's pretty high for a first, but teenage first baseman who hasn't played in full season ball yet. I better really, really think you're going to hit. I think the last teenage first baseman I was on whom I was really aggressive when ranking was Eric Hosmer. And guess what? Hosmer's had a nice career as a big leaguer, but he's never really hit like he was supposed to. Just in his free agent walk year, which turned out to be an illusion. Thank you so much for all the questions. God, I'm scrolling. They're actually still coming in. And there's a lot more that I... Oh, God. There's more I would love to get to if I had more time. So I apologize. However... There will be more opportunities for you to ask some of these questions. If I didn't get to yours, I apologize. I will try to do another text chat on my own site this week. Usually I try to do that on Thursday afternoons. By that point, all of the top 20s will have run. So I'll feel better equipped to answer some of those. And at some point in the next week or so, I think I'll do another video chat with The Athletic uh, through their Twitter account that is a little bit up to them. But I, I we have at least discussed it in theory. So thank you again for all your questions. I, I really do appreciate that. And that is all for this week's show. I will be back with a regular show next week with a guest, uh, as we usually do. And as I said, please keep an eye out for the remaining top 20s. The NL East runs on Tuesday. NL Central runs on Wednesday. NL West runs on Thursday. I will concede I still have two teams to finish up. But they will run on Thursday, no matter what. That is not an option. It's a hard deadline. I do do better with the pressure of a deadline in front of me. Thank you all so much for listening. Stay safe.